leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us. Godfather 2, ostensibly even better. Uh, a major, a major work. I said, there's a moment in that film where this really large person named Luca Brasi goes to have a meeting. And he goes up to a bar, I think it's somewhere in lower Manhattan, to meet an opposing person. And he's doing his Luca Brasi thing. I'm here to talk. I'm not happy with Don Corleone. And you're there. And what happens next, which I'm sure you're all aware of. I'm assuming everybody has seen this film. What happens next is someone goes, takes a wire, wraps it around Luca Brasi's neck. And for the next, and for the next 30 seconds... 40 seconds, we watch his head go like a thermometer bulb, red, and watch him die. Unbelievably violent. And so what I said to this person, I said, violence is part of our world. Violence is part of storytelling. Dealing with that horror, dealing with that terror. I said, it's really, on one hand, how you use it artistically. And I wasn't actually making the case that Doom 3 is art, because I actually wouldn't make it. It's entertaining, but it's not art. So I said, you can't simply look at the violent act and say, we should have nothing to do with that, because it is actually part of our heritage. It's how we got out of the caves, how we got out of the trees, how we're here. And we have to use it thoughtfully and mindfully. So that's, that's answer number one. I hate being rooted to a microphone, so I have this one I can walk around with. So... Uh, Here's answer number two. Uh, when I was a kid, many, many years ago in Brooklyn, Flatbush, um, I lived in a dysfunctional house. Essentially, three out of five, maybe three, maybe more, were, were mentally ill in various ways, which I can go into detail about. So if you have any mentally ill friends, we can certainly talk about mental illness, which is a topic I love to talk about. And I was a kid. Um, and I can remember... Uh, when I would be coming back from school, the train stopped in Flatbush and the junction. I'd stop there, and I'd be walking back home to this, you know, this house in Brooklyn, which is really, you know, to some extent a house of horrors. And while I was walking down, I'm imagining the alien ships coming, the lines coming out of the ships, the aliens with their, their bulbous heads and their ray guns popping down. And as I'm walking, I am lost in the fantasy lost in the fantasy of blowing those aliens away. It's a heroic moment. And I had that moment every single day. And one reason I think I'm here, and not like some of my family who aren't here, is because I had that point of escape, that point of fantasy. It made a big difference to me. And the last little part of that, yesterday I was talking to the cave people, and I haven't thought about this in... 40 or 50 years, and I told them about having little plastic dinosaurs in a cigar box. And I, and I sort of took them back to what it was like to have those dinosaurs. And I said, you know, I hadn't thought about this, but I think that cigar box of dinosaurs was also my little entry out. So coming back to rage, having that escape, having those stories of wild adventure, of tremendous, you know, heroic doings, fighting, battling stuff, can sometimes save people. It can sometimes be the thing that actually inspires them, makes them live. So it's just an argument for why sometimes taking out the zombies is not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, so, uh, so um, this slide's a late entry. This I, I grabbed yesterday, and I wasn't even sure how to insert in the keynote. Um, but I was talking to somebody, and I said, you know, there's a point I'd like to make with this. This is my novel that came down a month ago. So the, the, the sub-point is, if you have a shower like I have a shower, you probably have this very a similar kind of drain, just like that. That's one little point. The second point is, when you go into multi-platform, you have to remember that if you want total control of your work, write a novel. If you want to control the whole thing, write a novel. If you go into multi-platform, it's essentially you're working with a lot of people, a lot of ideas, a lot of teams. You will never have that same control. That's one point to make from that. And so I know it seems like shameless self-promotion. Oops. And uh, so I think uh, 
Lance mentioned FearNet, and another conversation I had yesterday was with my mentoring uh, team, my guardian team of uh, Double Happy, and we were talking about themes and what your story is about. And I said to him, I said, well, look at me my perspective. And I said, this is just my perspective. And this is from a review of Vacation from, on FearNet. I said, first you have to have your story. What is your tale? Don't tell me it's about this. It's about peace versus war. Don't tell me it's about love versus beauty. Don't tell me about it's making the world a better place. What's your story? And if you build that story properly, those themes will begin to emerge. So when I did this particular book, to be honest, I wanted to tell a tale. I had a story to tell. So here's the reviewer, who I've never met, and I'll read it because maybe it's a little too small. Maybe not. Maybe it's a little too small. And he said, perfect for today's dreadful outlook, paranoid enough for our economy and fitting for the mob mentality which decides so much for the country. Costello's 17-year-old tale, it's based on a short story I did 17 years ago, resonates like it was written yesterday, which is why the novel length works so well. Forget the zombies, vacation's the real deal, etc., etc., etc. One can see how it might grow into the 21st century if a world keeps spiraling into the toilet. So there's the themes, there's the about, there's the meaning. But I have to be perfectly honest. And that probably at the end, I could see it was there. I could see it was there when I finished the 428 pages of manuscript. I could see it was there. But unless you have that tale, unless you have the thing that's going to speak to someone as a story, you can, you can have all the themes you want. You can go to all the script writing gurus and tale tellers you'd like to go to, and uh, it will not work. At least that's my opinion. Again, this is my opinion. Okay, back to PowerPoint. Um, so that was story, themes, and meaning. So Blue Sky. Um, we're, we're talking about multi-platform, so we're going to talk about uh, starting with uh, Blue Sky. Nothing, right? And so I always tell people, never, ever put words on a PowerPoint screen, that, and you're going to read the words. <clears throat> so what is necessary for multi-platform IP? Uh, there's an idea. An idea can come from anywhere. It could be, I don't know, with, say, the Double Happy team, where they first thought of their two non-rabbits, pink and blue, was that the first thing they came up with? And they said, heck, this is interesting. Or maybe it was uh, the infinite sadness, or maybe some of the worlds. But a little smidge of something becomes an idea. You build it into a concept. Then the alchemy is story. And to be honest, I'm not sure I'd tell you where story comes from. I don't know how you actually build it. I know questions to ask to make it occur. And then interactivity. So the four words I'd give you right there on the, uh, the left to keep in mind are tapping into what makes an exciting and rich world. And we're going to get more about that later. Building the important elements of the world. And, that's, and by the way, I'm going to talk about this more too, but what's important, not the whole world. Don't tell me that there's a certain little fly with two heads that spits out a multi if you do that one more time, <laughs> uh, spits out a multicolored goo, if that fly is not some relevant part of the world, if, that, if that's something that you're just putting a detail, because you, you lose the forest for the trees. Creating storylines and characters within the world to drive goals that excite readers, viewers, players. And finally, matching compelling interaction, whether casual or AAA, to the world's characters and stories. So these are my guidelines. But it starts with looking in a mirror, looking at a stained glass window, taking a walk, and getting that first little hint of an idea. So uh, Gary told me, even though I've been uh, talking for a bit already, that I could take eight and one half minutes to uh, do some philosophical stuff, because I normally talk a lot about philosophical stuff. Um, <clears throat> and having majored in philosophy, who better? That's, you know, everybody knows who that is, don't you? That's Mr. Natural, R. Crumbs, Mr. Natural, who, of course, has all the answers. Um, so, what I would uh, to anyone, what I'd like you to do now, if you have a pencil and paper, I would like you to draw a teacup, please. If you don't have pencil and paper, do it inside your head, in that uh, beautiful little uh, whiteboard you have inside your mind. Draw a teacup. I'm going to save it for your grandchildren. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you can see this. There is a teacup. Okay? Everyone agree with a teacup? Most people will simply do a straightforward teacup. I didn't say what kind of teacup, how the teacup had a look. I didn't say be creative with it. I didn't say don't be creative. But people do. They tend to follow down that path of doing a teacup. 
Now, as a variant, you could, there's, there's what most people, how many people more or less had that in their head? In fact, do you, ha, you have your hand on the same side, don't you? Yes. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Here we go. Gary's, well, Gary's a little lopsided. That's a good, okay. <laughs> so, how many people had sauces? Right. Yeah. And I, I didn't say draw a teacup and a saucer. So, anyhow, you know, you did, there, there's a basic teacup most people did. But you could have done, this is a handy little item, which is a teacup that also stores cookies. You, you could have done something that was cracked and Wizard of oz or Alice in wonderland E, or some sort of surreal-looking teacup. So what I'm saying is, when you go into your projects, when you work in your projects, you've got to remember, and I'm going to give you five out of seven key words. Now you may say, why not do seven? I only have eight and a half minutes. So, so um, the other two you can come up and ask me about at some point. Or maybe you'll figure out what they are, because there's clues to them in here. So, five, so, so the first word is play. And as my good friend Martin Buber said, um, play is the exaltation of the possible. So in these early day, day and a half, you want to be playing with your concept. I think I told the cave people, you know, think of like three different ways to go. Completely different kind of ways to go. Just let it breathe for now. Play with it. You know, be a, take, take it as far out as you want to take it. Be open to things. Have fun with it. Take a walk and think about it. Okay. Um, so speaking of Alice in Wonderland, there's the uh, caterpillar. Who are you? I think it was the like, who are you? Uh, so I need a volunteer for the next little uh, demonstration. Do I have a volunteer? Not all at once, please. I can't take everybody. Volunteer. Volunteer. I think latecomers should volunteer, but you're a mentor, so I won't ask you. <laughs> should be here in time. Volunteer, please. This is interactive. Thank you, Julie. It's Julie, right? <laughs> okay. You, actually, you didn't have to uh, come up, but I'm glad you're here. No, but no. <laughs> so, um, but I do have three or four minutes. I'm going to ask you three questions, Julie. The first question is, what is something you greatly fear? And so, uh, what's that about? Uh, what, what that actually is about is making... And by the way, you may say, uh, why is he doing these things? We're here to hear, we can talk about stuff. Uh, the reason I'm doing these things is because words we can forget. Hopefully, if I can link these to experiences, it'll resonate later. That's my theory. I could be wrong. Um, who are you? What do you like? What turns you on? What excites you? What, do you? what kind of stories do you like? What kind of stories do you not like? What type of gameplay do you like? What kind of worlds do you like? Tapping into who you are is key. So if you're in your project, you have a focus group of one that is key, and that's you. Not imagining, for now, everyone else, but what motivates, excites, interests, engages you. Do you have a question? Uh, question time hasn't come, but I'll take one. Can you be more specific in the question? Um, if you're designing a certain type of game and you've never played that certain type of game, can it happen? I would, let's say you're designing a certain, let's say you've never played a casual game you're talking about, or a role-playing game, any kind of game. Um, my goal was, going back to, say, Laurel being seven, my goal would be to go into that project and be as open and naive and sort of experiencing be in the moment with whatever that is. Uh, so, if, say if you've got a gig from a museum, for example, or some institution, try to figure out, <clears throat> go in there and sort of take it on. I mean, uh, Neil and I did a project with connect with the museum, photography, Shackleton, Antarctica. Um, we really had to sort of bring ourselves to understand how it was going to be. How it was, it, it, I don't think anyone's done that before, have they? What we did. No, it hasn't been done before. And so doing new things means being open. So you can't walk in the room and say, well, I know this, this, this. I don't know this, so I shouldn't talk about this. I say, talk about it. Ask questions. Be vulnerable. That's, that's really so okay. All right. So um, this is taking away more than eight minutes. Sorry about that. But I'll rush the other part. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> then, uh, so we have two words so far. The third word just popped up there. It's a dream. And uh, here's the question for all of you. Um, if I were to give you a superpower right now, which I can do, and I may do, and I'm going to give you a choice of one, one or the other, you could either fly or you could be invisible whenever you wish to be. Fly, but you can't have both. And I'd like you to pick which one you like, and it's totally secret, you'll not be sharing this at all, whether you want to be a flyer 
or be an invisible person. Now decide which one you pick. Totally secret. It's private. Is everyone selected? Great. I was lying before. I do want to know what you picked. I just, so um, how many people, and look around, how many people pick flying? Wow. That's an unusual result. Thank you. How many people picked invisible? Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, one of the reasons it's interesting for me is I, I've done this before. It's usually like a 60-40 split, 60 flyers. You know, and, and you kind of know what flyers are doing. They're sort of going up, they're flying with the birds, they're getting places fast. It's kind of nice. What are the invisible people doing, though? What are, they, <laughs> what are, what are the invisible people up to? And I, I said this at one, one session, and they said, and someone said, well, no, I'm not going to do anything naughty or bad. He said, I could actually be very useful helping people. I could be like an invisible protector to the president, you know, right there. But it's sort of interesting to think about that. So what's, what's the point of this? In your project, I think it's important to dream. For a brief moment there, when I said those words, you had to actually say, hmm, do I want to fly? Do I want to be invisible? You had to treat it somewhat seriously. Do I want to fly? I want to be invisible. I'd rather fly. So you went down a little path, which should be more fun, which suits me. And that's really dreaming. I think I have a quote here from <laughs> someone of note. Oscar Wilde, what did he say? A dreamer is one who can only find his way by moonlight, and his punishment is that he sees the dawn before the rest of the world. Two more words, then I press on. Wonder. And somebody named Socrates, never heard of him, says, wisdom begins in wonder. So you've probably all noticed this. I'll be off mic now. Two mysteries. <clears throat> it can be done, by the way. Can be done, and, and I, I recommend that you experiment later with it, even though you're busy working on real things and doing real projects. Experiment later with uh, tying up the tie, just to see what it does to your head as you t tackle a problem that you have not tackled before. Most of the problems you're dealing with form the logical. We even need a story. We need gameplay. We need to reach a social community. We need to do all this. That's sort of you know. That's all. Uh, is that left brain or right brain? Let's just the brain deals with that. This is different. And see what it does to your brain when you do it. So those are five words, and there's two more, but I'm not going to talk about them now. Okay, on to, belatedly, uh, the case study. So as I mentioned, uh, Doom 3 uh, was one of the first time I worked with uh, the company id. Um, is that, am I can Okay. Uh, Doom 3 is a company I, uh, I work with. They'd never worked with a writer before. And they, of course, had one of the great successes of the gaming era, which was Doom, which came out about the time my seventh guest came out. It, it basically created a genre which is still a, the biggest, most mammoth game genre, and, and that's the first-person shooter. But they'd never done a writer because all they had was Monsters from Hell, <laughs> Space Marines, dun, 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 first-person shooter, and the future. That's pretty much all they needed when the graphics were very simple. But when Doom 3 was going to be done, it's going to be a rich, textured world. So they brought me in to work with them to build that world. But I started with some basic things. So I had to build a Bible. And I think I mentioned to you about Bible before. For me, it's key. It doesn't get everything. It gets the things that are going to be story and character relevant. And there'll be people saying you have to detail every flora, every fauna. I say if you do that, you're going to, you're going to miss the, the, what the real purpose of the Bible is, which is to feed in the story. So in this case, uh, I created the Union Aerospace Corporation with them. And that was something that was going to fly to Mars. Um, I, uh, teleportation, their brand new idea for Doom. They're experimenting with teleportation on Mars. I had characters. There's politics involved. Uh, emotional beats. There are people, I mean, someone has to do a Skype call. I think Lance is doing Skype later home, right? Um, when you're on Mars, you want to stay in contact. So there's emotional connection to people on Earth. All this stuff fed into what the, and then media. Is it videos? Is it text? How is it delivered? Went into that. Okay, And um, they took the words of the Bible, and this is where the Bible is really valuable, if it's targeted, and they shape into art. They build models, they build 3D imagery, the world starts taking shape. Mars itself, up there in the left, the transportation system takes shape, um, the characters, the look, the feel of the soldiers, um, the crazy guy in the bottom who actually is doing the bad experiments, like Jeff Goldblum, he starts taking shape, the world starts filling in. Okay, now id's rage. How is it different? In this case, they didn't have anything. 
They knew they wanted to do a game, and they had an engine, so they flew me out to Mesquite, Texas. So uh, Mesquite, Texas, I don't know if you've ever been to Texas, but 80% of the people pack heat. They, 80% of the people have guns. I've been told that every female carries a weapon. I've been told that. And you see the little sign down the bottom, armed females are hard targets for criminals. Wise words to remember. Um, <clears throat> so that's Mesquite, Texas. So I go out there to uh, meet with them. And again, it goes back to Gary's question about um, going out, doing something you haven't done before. So it's really like letting go of your protectiveness and the sense of I have to be on top of things. And I really work at that. If, I, if today was a running day, I would, uh, that's something I'd focus on for my run, is being open as possible. So what do I see? Well, their engine can do real physics, the brand new game engine. That means instead of hitting a bump and it goes up the way most games do, it'll go up proportionately to how the rock is placed. And all the other physics, much more real than any other game engine out there. Also, it's versatile. Some game engines you can go around, you've got a first-person shooter, you can do an adventure game, you can do role-playing, you can do the Sims things where they go in their houses and they make their food. Images can do certain things. Theirs was a very versatile engine. Uh, it could do first-person shooter, but also could do phenomenal driving. If you ever played Mario Kart, the driving in it was going to be incredible. And role-playing game features. It's good for dialogue, good for interacting with characters. So it's really going to be a hybrid, which is a danger because the game world is so narrow. Hybrids are, are a little bit scary. Um, and the other thing is their rendering for graphics was extraordinary in the sense that usually, let's say you had a game that's going to make walls, brick walls. They will like layer, texture that wall, repeat repeat, repeat, repeat. So essentially, each little chunk of the brick wall is the same. In this case, everything's unique. All the bricks are unique. They're, they're all, all the wall, the rock, the stone, the, grand, the, the ground is all unique. So I took that all in. So as I said, it suggested a hybrid game, a racing first-person shooter adventure game, a rich, detailed environment, and the idea that I came up with, and I came up with a couple ideas, but the idea I started getting a feel for the team, I met with the artist, was a PAW. And um, PAW is, of course, it's a post-apocalyptic you know, world. So this is a world post-apocalyptic. So we started thinking that you want to use this engine with the driving and the weapons and, and the texture of the world. That's what it suggested. Still no story, still no setup. Still no characters. Still talking. I went back. So then I started creating a background story for them, um, which wasn't necessarily the game story, because it's background. The game begins when the game begins. Um, and is that background story important? Remember, I sort of was a little dismissive of Bibles that go into too much detail about irrelevant stuff. Background story is relevant. You, the stuff you're putting there is going to resonate forward. So George Lucas obviously had no intention of doing transmedia. I was talking to some people, might have been uh, when we were in Sydney, how George Lucas isn't the greatest of screenwriters. Nonetheless, after his car accident, he's sitting in the hospital reading Joseph Campbell, and he's building the world. He's not thinking Clone Wars on Cartoon Network. He's not thinking the video games. He's not thinking the toys. He, he's probably not thinking much beyond the first movie. Maybe, uh, maybe a trilogy, because that's very mythological. It's Wagner, Ring of the Nibelungen. So you might be thinking trilogy, but not much beyond that. But what he is thinking about is the world. So the message I take from someone like Lucas is, forget, in a way, forget platforms. I said before, think story. Then let the themes emerge. In a way, I say forget platforms. I've been doing this for 20 years. And to be honest, I've been rather sort of unconcerned about platforms. And they have changed from little cartridges you put in things to, to what we have now. What's more important is the world you're building. And if you build the world properly, it's going to, it's going to adapt. To, uh, I think Tony was saying, I don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now. You build the world properly, it'll fit in fine 10 years from now, whatever we're doing. If we have chips in our head that are in, you know, plugging in stuff more around we're going gaming while we're having conversations. If you build the world properly, it'd still work. So, so I, I, I'd argue that that concern is, well, in the real world, we, eventually it's going to come down to the platform. It's not cake. And the other person is James Cameron. Um, as I like to say incessantly, I spent a day with James Cameron in the middle of Titanic. He was, he was in trouble because Fox thought he was going over budget. And of course, this movie was going to be a bomb. 
And what he was doing, we went to this theater. He had sent his robot down, and he had captured this uh, first-class stained-glass window leading into the dining area um, from the ship below the water. I don't know how deep it is. Anyone know how deep the Titanic is? Very deep, very deep. Capturing it. And, and then he showed me the, uh, the, the same window as it was when the ship launched. And he started talking about how he's going to use that setting, that this is going to be a set piece for the film, and how it's going to fit in. That attention to detail that he had was always targeted through the story he's telling. Now, that was a melodramatic story. That was very much, you know, who's got the jewel? Put the jewel down. I love you. All that stuff. It's a very sorry, old-fashioned story. But he had that story in his head. That was his script. And you can see the movie on the page if you read the script. And the detail he goes for is all going to reinforce that. 13,000 feet. Hmm? 13,000. 13,000 feet. Um, as a little sideline, just because I might as well say it, uh, he asked me to go down to the Titanic with him. And to show you what a good person I am, I had to turn him down because I was doing a big project for uh, Disney. So a bit of backstory from the Bible, and uh, and this is this is sort of nitty gritty stuff. And you know, uh, this is the Rage Bible, and I got to switch here. It's interesting doing this on the iPad, but uh, it seems to be working okay so far. Okay, so I did the background story, and I highlighted some things which uh, leap out at me from that background story. Planet Earth was facing a direct hit from an asteroid. Uh, doom was coming, not to make a pun, and the leaders were told in confidence. So I'm planting things that are going to set up, first of all, how the world got the way it was. There's leaders. There's potential for a plot. Could something happen? What's going on? And the third component, and this is just a snippet of the uh, backstory, um, the plan to bury people underground in arcs. They'd emerge 100, 120 years later. That was, that was the plan. And um, so already I have the idea that some people could survive, some people could be plotting to survive. The earth is going to be transformed, we don't know how, and that's set in motion the way the world is going to be. That's uh, Mel Brooks, I assume you know that, right? He has the, I have here the 15 commandments, the 10 commandments. <laughs> we'll never know what the other five were. Probably, I don't know. Okay, so to build the story world, um, at the risk of being academic, uh, start by playing, wondering, experimenting with the world. Try a lot of different worlds. Play with the aspects of the world. Um, if you have many different, uh, for example, in Double Happy, they have many different islands. Play with how those things work. Uh, the society. That's worth going into because that's going to influence your story. That's going to influence who the antagonists are, how they're fighting. Uh, characters and creatures. And make them real characters as much as possible. And the creatures, they, they should have a reason they act the way they do. Again, going back to Cave, we're talking about, I think there's a big lion or tiger, prehistoric lion or tiger, barber, is that right? And there's a big wombat, not a wombat, what was it? <laughs> not, it would kill a wombat, so a wombat the size of a house. And so, so what was an encounter between this killer tiger and the wombat like? Um, so you want to think through that. And I would personally would like to go back and see what that looked like. Problems. Problems and stories are great. You don't want a smooth path. You want problem after problem. Uh, the engine, what, what it can do, where it's going to play eventually, if you know you're going in using a flash casual game engine, that's limitations. But I think limitations are okay because at least you know, okay, it's flash, I can do this. Uh, we're doing, we, um, Neil and I are working on a project where it wouldn't even be flash. A lot of the things we're doing would be flat imagery. And I say, fine. I can still do cool things. We can still do cool things with that. So there, to me, there, a limitation is never a limitation. It's a creative chance. You don't have to keep pushing the envelope that way. Uh, the team, what can they do? You know, what's how, the artists, um, the programmers, who's passionate about it, who actually has the right to veto things. It's important to go out and have beers with them and get to know these people, get to know their skills, get to know what movies they like. What are they afraid of? What's their biggest fear? What's their favorite place? Because that, believe it or not, is going to go into your project. And I said before you, your passion. For me, I like the idea of an asteroid coming and hitting the planet. Not really, but I like the idea because I've always said the whole story of the Yucatan, fascinating. 
And they keep saying, there's asteroids out there, but we're not too worried. Well, I'm worried. <laughs> I don't wake up in the middle of the night worried about an asteroid, but I know they're out there, and we're not, I'm not, we're keeping track of all of them. So it was something I was interested in it. Uh, and the market. I mentioned market slash audience. Um, for me, I'm, I'm very much a commercial writer. I want people to see my stuff. I want to read it. It's important that they write me about it and say, I read this and I liked it. Um, and there's different audiences. I've done kids' books. I've done kids' games. And I've done things, obviously, that are not for kids. And so I need to think about that because they're different. They're different. It's not everything for everyone. And I think I said that yesterday in one of the meetings. It's not everything for everyone, and we're not, we can't do everything. And we shouldn't feel we have to. We can, pick, we can, we can build it and let it grow organically. So Rage was built. Um, there's a little picture of the world. There's one of the tribes people. Um, resources low, water low, oil low, putting things together. And this will be interesting because the Wi-Fi was really not working too well. So this is one of the things I showed them at the beginning of the project. Because you've got to sort of interest and excite them. I mean, they're computer people. They're sitting in cubicles. You know, in their, in their downtime, they're playing Call of Duty. So you throw a little Pink Floyd. It's Discovery Channel, but throw a little Pink Floyd on say, oh, there's Mother Earth. And the thing is, everyone on that planet knows this is coming by now. Very few know that some have a way out. For the rest, it's time to go to the finest hours. It's like they're counting down. So emotionally, you want to get to that moment like, what was that like? And what would it be like to be a survivor? like to be someone who's going to stay there. What's playing rather smoothly, I'm just saying. <laughs> so the artists in the team, they're there. They're there. I said, yeah. I got it. So that's, that's around. You can get that. Um, how am I doing time? Okay, okay. So the art project is a very important part of it. Now, obviously, uh, I saw 2001 20 times. So, you know, maybe I'm a little influenced by Kubrick, possibly. <clears throat> I, I remember when I, I saw it when it was opened, which will date me, and um, came out, and they're selling guides that explained what it meant. And just to show you the change in media savviness, because I didn't know what just happened, what just happened at the end of the movie, uh, I showed it to my uh, oldest son when he was like 12. He said, oh, well, they took him, and this is probably aliens. They built this place to make him feel comfortable. He got the whole thing. So in the space of 10 years, I was like 18, 19 when I saw it, maybe 20. So the art project, and certain people, scientists, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, are going to get to go under the earth and emerge to rebuild society. That's the project. Um, except things, again, I said problems are good. So if the asteroid had come and destroyed everything, that'd be fine. The arcs would have come up and everything would be okay. But in this case, there was something different about the asteroid. Its makeup, the way it behaved, and also the way it was going to interact with our moon. I mean, just about a month and a half ago, they had some interesting studies about how we don't really know what's going on inside the moon in terms of we think we know the makeup. There was a theory actually that once was part of the Earth. A lot of mysteries there. So played with that. So the asteroid doesn't exactly do what they expect it to. In other words, it's not a slate wiper. It doesn't take everybody out. That means there'll be a society of some sort there when these high-tech arcs emerge. So the society, it's bits and pieces. They're taking an airplane thing to make a windmill. They have tin cans, oil cans. Um, the houses put together from junk and stuff. Uh, still a lot of people probably killed because the asteroid split into three pieces and hit the planet. So a lot of people are no longer here. But some people survived. And were able to go on somehow. Some, some people were too close to the impact zone. And because of radioactivity and other things that are detailed in the, the Bible, they turned into what we call fondly mutants. Now, mutants are a little bit like zombies, except they move quickly. And they actually can use weapons to some extent. So uh, there's mutants around there that you have to deal with. So uh, if you think zombies... Because zombies go slow. I always feel like even if we had attacked by zombies in this house... The way they go, we're okay. 
we can run, yeah, come and get me. They go very, very slowly. These mutants go very quickly. Also, since they're survivors, that society will have set up, there'll be sort of a political structure. Now, believe it or not, in this future, the politicians are a little corrupt. Can you believe that? They actually have corrupt politicians. So, uh, so it's a very sort of, you know, bartering, trading, corrupt, you do this for me, I'll do this for you kind of world. And I'm not sure this is too valuable, but since I have a cue, let me show it to you. Uh, script contents for one level. And um, so if you've ever seen a big game script, big game scripts are big. They can go like three, four, five hundred, six hundred pages. And you have to detail everything everybody says, all the different possibilities. So this is the contents list for just one level. A lot of writing. And some of it isn't terribly creative, so you sort of have to... Uh, Coming up with the ideas are creative, but you have to sort of get yourself, when you have to do many variations of a line, and make each one resonate. So there'll be background for what the challenge is, background on a character, voiceover, a couple of options, depending upon the status of the character, the job description, what you're supposed to be doing, the ending statement, um, the goodbye statement, which is when you've closed and finished it, and progression statements, that's me, you're on a mission, great work, you've solved that puzzle. Or, watch out, you have so much time to do. Um, and then text that might be delivered within the game. So that's just a sample. That's only one version of a game script. That's not the most complex script I've used. In this case, that's the one they went with. And I'll talk about things that uh, went wrong with the project as well. Um, okay. Filter when you see that through um, the little, if you can, keep the image of me 10 years old, 8 years old, walking down from Flatbush and, you know, so people, it can, it can be fun. If you haven't killed mutants, it can be fun. Uh, okay, so that was the game. Um, now, dueling platforms. Can I go 10, 15 into the other time? Sure. I still have the exercise, but I'll, I, can make it work. I think I make it work within the time frame. So, from the beginning, I didn't mention this. It was designed to be multi-platform. They, they didn't use that word. I don't think they maybe still don't even know that word. But they wanted the world of rage to exist. That's scary now. Uh, <laughs> they, want the world, they wanted the world to rage to, uh, to exist uh, across all different platforms. So, first of all, in the upper left there, you have the um, AAA game. Maybe, I don't know, a 30, 40, 50 million dollar project, uh, which is the, the rage game. Uh, on the right, you have the prequel comic book. And they work, pretty much they work from my Bible to do a prequel set in that story world. And then, because collaboration is important, they ran that by me and we talked about it. The bottom right is a casual game for your iPad, which I have here, but I probably shouldn't try to run it right now. Which is basically, it takes you into a moment in it. So if you want to play, there's something called Mutant Bash TV, which is like a game show, except you have to go in and take out mutants. Um, and the odds are against you. And essentially, that's what the, what's the game. It's just fun going in, taking care of mutants. And then there's a novel. So I wrote the game, and I wrote them because I'm primarily a novelist. I mean, that goes in my gravestone. 20, 50,000 years from now. It'll say, <laughs> uh, I'm a novelist. And, and I want to I bring this up to show a key thing for um, difference in platforms. And, and this, this may be a little... A little uh, Tedious, let me do it. I want to just uh, share a, a bit from the very beginning of the novel, okay? All right, just I'll make it fast. Chapter one. Rain looked up from his beer as the bartender raised... Rain looked up from his beer as the bartender raised the volume of the TV. Uh, the newscast showed rioting in the streets of Kabul. Then it jumped to another reporter atop a hotel roof looking down at a Baghdad filled with fires. The effect of the United States Armed Services' complete withdrawal continues to destabilize the entire region. The violence now threatens to spread to the neighboring states of... Secretary up, turn that crap off, will you, Eddie? The sound disappeared. Rain picked up the near-empty shot glass next to his beer and drained it. Funny to sit here in this Red Hook dive, appropriately named The Hook, just as his old man used to do when he retired to his... So strangely reading a book old neighborhood in Brooklyn. His dad, a life from the Marines, was a man who had only one vision for his two sons, not just to enter the military service. Both would go into the Corps, no question about it. And Nicholas Rain didn't even question the idea of following his brother Chris. 
Ultimately, that meant following him to the never-ending training missions and covert ops that made up the constant war of the 21st century. Then things changed. Probably in the day his brother got caught by an IED. The grim reality of those forever wars hit him. I'm going to stop there. I plan on reading more. So what's my point? In the novel, I can get inside the character's head. I can take you to the emotional experience. I can give you a whole perception, because this is the character that's going to go into that future world. In the game, that character's head is your head. It's your experience. You're doing it. So whatever the platform, you have to think is what is, and I, the expression I use, what is point of view? What is your point of view in, in, in the world? Are you going in as the character? You're going in connected to the character, empathizing with the character? In a novel, you're sort of reading about a person. You're reading about this third-person character. But eventually, you connect to him. I gave this... Um, my, my wife had read the other book, and she wanted another book. And I said, well, read this. I said, you're not going to like it. It's a, it's a tie-in novel for a game. And she got into it, and she said, I love this. Because she loved the character. She got into the character's head. So in, in, in your games, and you may have characters, realize that some people may be connecting with them in an emotional way. And also understand the point of view, I think, can be key in, in how you interact. Um, one thing you probably are thinking about, how do we market this? How do we market We're creating this. How do we get it out? And of course, there's viral things in marketing. This is a very expensive game. So, of course, I got this from my daughter in New York City. Daughter, that was very Brooklyn. Um, in, in case of Rage, they had a tremendous marketing budget, so the cabs are running around with Rage on top of the cabs. And um, one other thing, I don't know if this show plays here. Uh, Breaking Bad, and I didn't even know this was happening. This is the show Breaking Bad. I'm watching this one night because I like the show. It's actually great. I said, wait a second. Wait a minute. That's Jesse from Breaking Bad, and he's playing Rage. Came out of nowhere. You gotta help. One interesting thing about that Time Magazine's uh, media reporter did a. Th- I gotta get the hard R's out of there. The media reporter did a, did a story where he said that. The game Rage, his playing the game Rage modeled the dissolution of his mind on crystal meth. So he's looking into this whole thematic thing, how the game was a metaphor. Um, and as I said before, it starts with story and experience. You can look for all the metaphors you want. And they may be there. And the themes you want. But it's going to be the tale that, that comes out afterwards. Um... So, oh, could it have been better always? Well, unfortunately, there's no time left for me to talk about how it could be better. <laughs> Gets me off the hook. No, a uh, little bit of time. Um, how could it have been better? I went to Texas, met with the team, built the world, built the game, everything. did the writing, did the dialogue, built the, the whole overall story arc. What they wanted to do, because of the way they work, is they were going to build the missions. The general sort of slice-by-slice slice missions. Now, I had done a game based on a pretty poor movie called G-Force. It was about guinea pigs. But in that project, the producer said, you know what, I want you to work with the level designers. So I went over there every three or four weeks, worked with them in, what town was the town that was in? It was Darby, I think, Darby. And instead of having missions where, like, go do this and come back, each mission was its own self-contained story. In this case, they didn't do that. So... Instead of having the missions really story connected, it was like, good work, now go do this and bring it back. Well, you brought it back, that's great. We have some more mutants over there, go do that. So it was a a lost opportunity. Now, I could have, and if I get to work with them a third time, which is possible, I may try to say, you know, you're, you're, you're missing something here. And I think reviewers picked up on it. The reviews have generally been pretty good. The numbers have been relatively high. But other people said, whoa. I had someone write me and said, you know, I loved your novel and the story was great, but the story in the game was, it wasn't really that good. And I wrote back and said, I did both of them. Except in this case, the missions were simply, you know, essentially milk runs. So the key thing there is that would have made it significantly better. If every mission was built like it was 
context of like a short story, a tale playing out, it would have been phenomenally more powerful. And it could have been done. Wouldn't have cost a lot of money. It could have been done. And as I said to you at the very beginning, if you want total control, write a novel. Multi-platform, I didn't have control of that. So all I could do is let it occur. And um, the last thing I'll leave you with in terms of this is uh, problems are good. Most people don't like problems. I mean, I don't like when my basement floods twice a year, three, four feet of water. I don't like that. But in terms of the creative field, when you feel you've got a problem, that's actually an opportunity. You say, I don't know what we should be doing about this. I'm a little confused. That's an opportunity. If you're doing something that hasn't been done before, that's cool. And if you say, I'm doing something that hasn't been done before, and I don't know how to do it, cooler still. So I say problems are really, really important. And this chart, of course, can guide you through any of the problems you have. You just got to follow all the paths. You know, it's very simple. Just navigate your way through. I'm kidding. That's not it. Okay. Um, so that concludes my presentation of my case study, which I never did before. Sounds good. Well, see, um, I, some of you may know my oldest son is an artist, um, and you know he he has things where he has you know bits of broken glass and blocks of wood, and then there's this beautiful Botticelli painting he's done that's sort of meshed into it. Uh, art, some I, I think for me the difference is art rises above that it's more, and this is where I may sound like I'm going to contradict myself. It's about more than simply what you have in front of you. Um, Doom 3 is the compelling story of trying to save the universe from these monsters from hell. And there are human values in it, like courage, bravery, deciding to do difficult things, all available stuff. For me, art is, it says something larger than that about the human condition. It says something that perhaps hasn't been said before in the same way. Um, it's something we haven't seen. So for me, entertainment is, and I don't, entertainment's not a bad word for me. That's really what I do, and I'm happy. I appreciate art. I love art. I mean, you know, Mahler's are art. Elvis Costello's entertainment. Well, no, I shouldn't say that either. I'll get in trouble. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis? <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis is entertainment, and Mahler's art. Because uh, when you listen to Mahler's Sixth Symphony, it's transcendent. It takes you someplace beyond the planet. Uh, a good thriller, a good mystery book, and even the book I showed in the beginning, which you should, you should read here. You should go order it in your Kindles because you have the showers and you'll get freaked at night. Um, so, but it is, it is simple. Well, it's about the human condition and it's about being brave. And it's, what do you do if you're a family and you face, you're faced with impossible choices? To me, that those are entertaining, story-driven decisions. It was art. It would be something more. It would be making a larger, more global statement. Does that make sense at all? Okay. And I'm speaking as a non-artist. I'm an entertainer. I mean, in, in terms of uh, from the film community or the art community. Okay, uh, I'll give you an example that, that I think is somewhat relevant. Um, I was hired to do a very large game based on Pirates of the Caribbean, Pirates of the Caribbean 3 specifically. And they brought me in, and they said, uh, the screenwriters, Ted Elliott and uh, Rossi, I forget his first name, uh, are willing to work with you. So, so they really were not gamers, they, they, they wanted, but they wanted a quality game and a quality story because they had a quality franchise they had created, Jack Sparrow. At this point, the first movie had been out. Second had not come yet. The third script was all over the map. All just, just very confusing. So in this particular case, what I did was because in a, in a screenplay, you can get away with a lot. Because a screenplay is a narrow slice. He walks in the door, you see that room. He turns right, goes up the stairs. Just going up the stairs. It's almost as though the rest of the world doesn't have to exist. In a game, you need all of that. So they had something going on with Davy Jones' heart in a chest. It was actually key to the story and, and would need to be key to any of the game experience. And I said, can you please tell me, I did this, we had, we had like maybe six, eight conversations, can you just tell me what's going on with the heart and the chest? Because it's vital and, I can't, and uh, they're both in line and there's a pause. And they said, we're not quite sure. <laughs> 
And the thing is, in terms of the screenplay, they could get away with it. It's an object of importance. It's been moved over here. They need to do this. You can get away with it. In the game, you couldn't. In the game, you hadn't. So what we had some discussion. I said, do you mind if I think about it and come back to you with it? So that actually happened. The next conversation I said, well, here's what I, here's what I think is going on with the heart and the chest and Davy Jones. So in a way, that was sort of op- opening up the doors to their eyes to see that film and game are different. And, and also, they were open to that experience. Um, that was a Bruckheimer project. The next one I did was another Bruckheimer project, and he told, that's Hoyt Axton, I think Hoyt is the screenwriter, told him the same thing, talk to the writer. So I think one, one thing you can do is if you have a savvy producer like a Bruckheimer, and you have writers who are open and vulnerable, I'm not just a writer, I just do novels, I just do screenplays, that's all I care about. But if it's your world and someone's going to be playing with it, you should care about it, who get that. So it's, it's a way of educating them that if, and, and you've heard other people talk about this, if there's going to be a book series, if there's going to be a YA series, if there's going to be toys, going to be video games, that's all your universe. You need to be involved. You need to be savvy, to quote Jack Sparrow. And, and I think that is slow. I feel it's slowly changing in projects like that. I mean, they were, you can see it goes, stops me dead in my tracks, uh, only because I, I really want to be very clear on, on, on what I'm about and where I come from. Um, I think there are aspects of um, a couple that I would say were, you know, that were artistic. One was Seventh Guest, which was the first video game I did, which I, which I felt... Uh, look and feel. It, it felt to me it was a brand new experience. Certainly, it had nothing like that had happened before, and it, it was a new way of storytelling. So it was beyond. To me, I, I still have people coming up to me twenty years later, saying, "I love that game. I absolutely adore that game." If you haven't seen it, it's worth taking a look. And it's very, very old, but it stands up amazingly well. So that I, I, I think has elements of art. Also, I, I did something called the cartoon history of the universe for a Penguin Putnam. Um, which had so many challenges and problems. In the end, it all came together and felt like an organic whole. And to me, that was not just an entertainment breakthrough. I felt there was something artistically beautiful in way all... Because we've talked about how you can segment yourself. It's a comic book. It's this. It's that. It's online community. It's a video game. It's a casual game. But it all came together into a whole. And that, that I thought, was pretty artistic. And... Um, in terms of uh, other things like novels, I, I would not say they're, they're art, but they're, I think some of them are pretty damn good novels. Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us.